Doubtless it is a rule in poetry that if you do your own work well, you'll find you have done also work you never dreamed of. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 59, C.S. Lewis, Poet. After Hours with Dr. Don W. King. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. In our last episode, Andrew and Reverend Malcolm Geit kicked off Poetry Month by speaking about poetry in general, what it is and why it matters. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking fairly broadly about C.S. Lewis as a poet. Then, in the subsequent two episodes, we're going to be looking in more detail at Lewis's two major published poetic works, Spirits in Bondage and Dimer. And then after that, we'll wrap up Poetry Month with an episode about the poetry of Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, as well as speaking to a poet who has been inspired by Lewis's life and work. But as I said, today we're considering C.S. Lewis as a poet, meaning that we're talking to the man whom everybody agrees knows Lewis's poetry the best, Dr. Don W. King. Dr. Don W. King received his PhD from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. He has taught at Montreat College for 47 years, teaching courses in British literature. Last time he was on Pints with Jack, he was talking to us about Lewis's brother, Warney, and about the book that he has coming out on that subject. Dr. King is an active researcher and writer, publishing over 60 articles and numerous books, including several books about Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, as well as two books which I'm sure we're going to mention today, The Collected Poems of C.S. Lewis, a critical edition, and C.S. Lewis, Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse. Dr. Don W. King, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Oh, so glad to be back. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, the session I had earlier with you and the other podcast that you post. So thanks for letting me be back. <laughs> and thank you for persevering with our technical difficulties. We were trying something a little new today. And um, let's just say that uh, there, there was a little bit of work that needed to be done. But we've got here now and the audio quality should make uh, Taylor happy. Well, what have you been up to since we spoke last year? I believe you had a wedding anniversary, right? Yes, my wife and I celebrated our 49th uh, wedding anniversary, and uh, we several of our wedding anniversaries we celebrated in Oxford, and we almost did this time, but we came back just a little <laughs> bit before. But while we were there, we started thinking about our 50th wedding anniversary, and we're probably going to do some kind of tour of maybe Cornwall, Ireland, Scotland. We'll see. We've got a oh. year to plan it, but that's kind of where we're heading. As a child, we would always have our summer holidays in Cornwall on the on the south coast. Uh, it's yeah. a beautiful, idyllic little fishing village that we would go to. And uh, I would beg my mother every year for us to have a day trip to Newquay, which is on the north coast. Because there, there was surfing, uh, fish and chip shops, and video arcades. My mother thought it was horrible and trashy, but I absolutely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to pick your brain uh, another time about that. And believe it or not, this is... My students don't believe this when I tell them this, but I grew up on the east coast of uh, Virginia, and so I was a surfer when I was a younger person, much younger. <laughs> I love it. Well, during this interview, I'm only sipping on a smoothie, which my wife made me. Uh, are you having anything? Uh, yeah, I'm having a cup of uh, hazelnut coffee. I usually have a couple of cups in the morning, and I'm finishing up my second one. Excellent. Well, to your good health. Cheers. Cheers. So you've been on the show before, but would you mind just taking a minute or so just to introduce yourself to any new listeners that we've had since you were last on? Sure. I, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Virginia, 
on the east coast of uh, the U.S. And as a young boy, I thought that I would be a professional football, baseball, or basketball player. But I soon realized that I was too short for basketball, too small for football, and uh, too bored by baseball. <laughs> so <laughs> eventually I came to my senses, um, and I had always been a pretty active reader, read lots of biographies when I was growing up. So one thing led to another. I went off to uh, university. I thought I was going to be an engineer because I always liked math. But my problem was I could not apply math. And if you can't apply math, you can't be an engineer. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I continued to read. And um, by this time, I'd fallen in love with writers like Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So uh, eventually, I went to Virginia Tech, which is um, an engineering school, and spent about a year taking engineering courses. But once I realized I would never want to drive over a bridge that I designed, <laughs> I uh, decided I'd better change major. So in the end, majored in English, and that's where I began to encounter Lewis, uh, because a lot of the courses I took, even at a large state university, uh, had as supplemental texts one of Lewis's books. So when I took medieval literature, a supplemental text was The Allegory of Love. When I took a Milton course, uh, Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost was a required course. So I kept running into Lewis, and um, I worked in one of the large dining halls, and at the end of one of my shifts, uh, somebody came up to me and gave me a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't think up until that time I had known Lewis other than through maybe his literary studies. So anyway, I, I started reading the Narnia stories, fell in love with them. And that was sort of the, the catalyst for my um, interest in Lewis. Wonderful. And when you were last on the show, you were talking about your upcoming book on Warney Lewis. Do you have any updates on the status of that book? Yeah, I'm happy to say that uh, I basically finished a, a full draft uh, about a year ago. And since then, it's been under editorial review, and now it's in production. So if everything goes well, uh, it should be out by the end of this year or early next year. would probably be appropriate if it comes out next year, because that'll mark the 50th anniversary of uh, Warney's death. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll see. But uh, it, it's been a great journey. I started the, working on the book in 2015, so if it comes out in 23, that'll be sort of an eight-year process, which when I look back over the books I've written, I'd say most of my books average seven to eight years from sort of conception to the book actually appearing in print. <laughs> That's quite a gestation period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes like on the, on the warning biography, I basically just wrote one chapter a year. I just had other things going on. And it was a, a long process because uh, I think maybe, as I mentioned the last time, he, he kept a diary for most of his life. So just reading through his diary was quite a, quite a process, mm. very time-consuming. <laughs> well, let's talk about Lewis as a poet. To begin with, when did he begin writing poetry? Well, I think he first became interested in poetry through, as he says in Surprised by Joy, through the experiences of joy. He lists um, hearing or reading Balder the Beautiful is dead. He, 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 uh, when he came across that line, that was one of the third instances of what he described as joy. 
He wrote his first poem when he was about 10 years old, The Old Gray Mare. And um, I think became a little bit more active while he was uh, studying at, at Malvern College. And uh, at one point, that love for uh, the North or North literature ended up with him coming across the, the Ring of Nibelung's those stories, and he wrote his own three-and-a-half canto poem based on uh, the story of the, of the Valkyries and, and so forth. So he would have been oh, 13, 14 years old, 15 years old when he was working on that. And Lewis eventually published poetry. Would you mind just giving us a quick overview of the main published collections? Yes. Um, Hooper, in 1964, published... Uh, Lewis's poems, sort of a collection of poems that he had pulled together. And then a few years later, he published Lewis's narrative poems. And then in 1994, he published what he called the collected poems of C.S. Lewis. Uh, so those were the, initially, those were the, the collections of Lewis's poems that were available. But the problem was, uh, it was, they, they were not complete lists of Lewis's poems. Again, Lewis, uh, what Hooper did was publish most of the poems uh, that um, Lewis, that had appeared in uh, print, but but not all of them. Hmm. But even in Lewis's lifetime, he published books of poetry, Dimer and Spirits in Bondage. Right. As a young soldier in World War I, he wrote a number of poems on the battlefield that he then combined with uh, another two-thirds uh, of poems he had written previously and published in 1919, Spirits and Bondage. And I think um, it was during that time that Lewis's thirst, I think I would use that word, his thirst to become known as a great poet, really ramped up. And then after World War I, actually beginning in 1916, and uh, it wasn't published until 1926, Lewis worked on Dimer, uh, his long narrative poem. I think the initial reviews of Spirits and Bondage, they were, they were polite if tepid. Uh, the reviews of Dimer were not very sympathetic. And so I think that was pretty disappointing to Lewis, who, as I said, had always wanted to be a, a great poet from the time that he became interested in poetry until about the second, no, about halfway through his 20s. He wrote one poem in 1916. It's a poem, it's a sonnet, actually, to poetry. And some of the lines are, I have not bowed in any other shrine from babyhood, nor sought another god to worship, and with faithless footsteps trod in any flower-strown path, save only thine, dear posy. So there he is in that poem. Uh, basically dedicating himself, throwing himself, if you will, into writing poetry and wanting to be a great poet. Hmm. Now, Spirits in Bondage, we'll talk about that in the next episode with Karen Swallow Pryor. And when I read it recently, it was, just struck me as, oh, this is, this is World War I poetry. I'd read some Wilfred Owen and some other authors, and it seemed very similar. Yeah. Although mixed with a, a Lewis that I sort of recognized, there's a lot of very common Lewisian language and themes that are in there, but because this is a pre-conversion Lewis, not quite in the form or with the sentiment that I was expecting. But Dimer, would you mind just saying a few words about that? Because what is Dimer about? 
<laughs> well, Dimer is basically, uh, as I read it, is this it's the story of uh, a young autonomous person or a young autonomous man who who's trying to live completely independent from any kind of authorities uh, above him. I think the poem begins with him being in the schoolroom. He's very much not interested in what the teacher is lecturing on. He's looking outside. He's he's uh, very much desiring to be outside in nature. And the poem begins rather rather oddly with um, Lewis being, or the character in the poem, Dimer being called out the, by the professor or by the teacher. And as Dimer leaves the classroom, he actually kills the teacher. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's kind of the beginning of the, of the poem, and then it moves forward from there. Mm -hmm. Very much influenced, I think, by his experiences in World War I as well. There are several passages that are right out of the kind of things Lewis would have seen and experienced in World War One, mm. And also in school, having a teacher that he hated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when, I, when I started reading that, I actually got a little bit of echo from Prince Caspian, where Aslan and the girls come and liberate uh, the Telmarines, and particularly yeah. everyone in the school, although mm -hmm. there's, there's less murder involved. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a, a good observation. Lewis was very much unhappy with that kind of that kind of rigid system of learning that uh, he experienced and so we kind of uh, imaginatively worked that out through Dimer's treatment of the teacher just glad he did it imaginatively <laughs> <laughs> so over the past few months i've been reading your critical edition of lewis's poetry and i basically hadn't read any prior to this Part of the reason that we're doing this poetry month is I know that this is a real weakness in my understanding of Lewis. I just hadn't touched his poetry. So I knew if I scheduled a month on the show, it would force me to actually rectify that. And although lots of people had said to me before that Lewis's poetry isn't very good, I have to admit, I am really pleasantly surprised. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. So much of it is just delightful and funny and moving. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the question a lot of people ask, you may have asked yourself this question before you began reading his poetry seriously, is does Lewis's poetry really matter? Because most people, uh, and I think this will always be true, most people only know him through his prose, both his fiction and his nonfiction, and it's probably the case that that will always be that way. So, you know, why read Lewis's poetry? Why bother sifting through his verse if if we find the real gold is in his prose. So maybe, maybe we should just write Lewis's poetry off, as, especially as his uh, early poetry is so much adolescent self-indulgence. Then when he began to write seriously, his commitment to older poetic forms and traditions, at least for some, hopelessly outdate his poetry. Um, we know that he, was, um, he hated modernism. And so his antipathy to modernism, modernism isolated him, some might say, to a kind of poetic backwater. I, in fact, I had a friend years ago um, who, when we were talking about Dimer, um, he, he scoffed at it and he said it was, it was terrible. I suspect that my friend is not alone in that um, evaluation, but I equally suspect that he and others who quickly 
dismiss Lewis's poetry reveal more about their own literary limitations than their understanding of, of Lewis's verse. So, yeah, I mean, I think Lewis's poetry matters uh, for a number of reasons, certainly for biographical reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we just talked about the importance, I think, of Spears and Bondage and Dimer. They, they offer unique insights into Lewis before he became a Christian, Lewis, Lewis the Atheist. Uh, in Spirits and Bondage, he explores how this, the spirit of uh, humankind, and he portrays that spirit as either proud and indomitable or longing for beauty in those poems. At the same time, that, that spirit is shackled by an earthly experience, one marked by suffering and probably theological uncertainty. So um, those early poems, Spirits and Bondage in particular, I think we see Lewis disturbed by a sense that Human life is directed by what he would call a malicious and a capricious God. And we see that um, certainly in Dimer as well. Owen Barfield uh, argued that in Dimer, he says, it's practically the only place where the voice of the earlier Lewis, that is before Lewis's conversion to Christ, is heard speaking not through the memory of the later Lewis, but one could say in his own person. So there are, there are biographical reasons, certainly, for reading Lewis's early work. And when you do, uh, when you read a poem like De Profundis in um, Spirits and Bondage, it's, it's basically a poem, poem where the speaker is just raising his fist in the face of God and criticizing God for where humankind is, World War II, or excuse me, World War I and the death of so many people. So certainly the biographical reasons are there. But, um, you know, Lewis was, I, I think, as you're discovered, I think Lewis, you've discovered Lewis's poetry is pr- pretty good. It may not be great. He's not a William Butler Yeats, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot of power in his poetry. You had Malcolm Guide on your podcast recently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, here's what Malcolm had to say about um, Lewis's poetry. Um, He says, Lewis has sometimes been dismissed as archaic and eccentric, but in retrospect, his efforts in poetry, as in other fields, are much more contemporary, much more keenly directed to the crises of modernity than he's been given credit for. He goes on to say that he's not perhaps a great poet in the same sense as Yeats and Eliot, but he is a great deal better than the long neglect of his verse would imply. And Malcolm goes on to say, there's an internal coherence between all his efforts in every field. Taken together, these efforts can constitute an attempt at the redemptive reintegration of reason and imagination, the broken modes of our being and knowing. And he ends this little um, evaluation of Lewis's poetry by saying that Lewis's poetry deserves to be reread, more widely studied, and anthologized. And of course, when I when I saw that, that that simply confirmed what I had always believed. And so I, th- I think that we see in um, his poetry uh, how we uh, can find his attempts at the redemption of reintegration, the, the redemptive reintegration of reason and imagination. Hmm. So, yeah, I could go on, but I'd probably better <laughs> stop. <laughs> well, even if Lewis's poetry isn't the very best that poetry has to offer, as we read in the book which we read this season, The Four Loves, Lewis himself says that we don't throw out our silver to make room for gold. 
If it's still right. silver, it's still pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good way to put it. Did Lewis's poetry change much as he journeyed through life? I mean, obviously his conversion changes his his worldview quite considerably. Uh, but does his poetic form or anything else change as he gets older? Well, I think one change is that early on he wanted to write narrative poems. Thus, we have Dimer and then the Queen of Drum and a poem based on Lancelot. But once he came to the point of realizing probably wasn't going to be a great poet, and this would have been in his, uh, his early 30s, mid-30s, he turned almost exclusively to what we might call lyrical poems. So that's, that's one way in which his uh, poetry changed. But I think more importantly is he, he had to go through a process, and he writes about this in, um, both in his letters and in some of his uh, diaries. He had to go through a process of dying to the idea or to the idol of being a great poet. And this, the dying to that idea really took place at about the same time he was moving towards uh, theism and then eventually faith in Christ. <laughs> and I think that, um, as I'm not the first person to make this point, but I think what's interesting is that as Lewis dies to the idea of being a great poet, um, the prose begins to pour out of this pen in an amazing way. It's almost as if God... It's almost as if Lewis realized God was killing the idol, since God's the great iconoclast. Uh, God was was killing the idol that Lewis had of being a great poet. And once once Lewis died to that idea, he be, he begins to write this amazing series of Christian apologetic books that um, everybody still today are are amazed by when they read them and, and and gain so much from the reading of them. So I think in terms of how he changed as a poet, it was more not only did he begin to write more lyrical poems, if you will, but he he stopped striving to be a great poet. I think he uh, he realized that God was calling him to do something else with his writing. Mm. Nothing which hasn't died will ever be raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. When I read Lewis's prose, though. I can I see the poetic quality of his writing. In poetry, you choose your words very carefully because you, you want to evoke things in your reader so they can capture something of the vision that you are trying to communicate. And I think you see that in his prose. His word choice is always very specific. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm always shocked. Lewis has some long books, uh, but he also has some very short books. And whenever I read them, I'm always shocked at how short they are because I always mm -hmm. remember far more in them. And I think it's it's something of that quality, the fact that in a few words, he can just set my imagination on fire, and then he just sits back and, and, let, and, let, and lets my uh, imagination draw me into the, into the story or into the thing that he's trying to teach. Um, the, the words seem to do so much more work because he has that bent towards poetry. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think what's interesting for me is I can feel that happening when I'm when I'm coming to a passage I can I can feel okay something really cool is getting ready to happen <laughs> Lewis is leading me along the way hmm. I, I would say that the thesis of my my book my first book on Lewis the hidden legacy of Lewis's poetry the thesis of that book is that while Lewis is a good poet and not a great poet we see the best expression of his poetry and his prose. So that just kind of supports what, mm. what you're suggesting there. 
Yeah. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> well, we'll come back to your book about the legacy of, of his poetic impulse. Um, let's first talk about the critical edition that you produced. Uh, and so, first of all, for people that don't know, what actually is a critical edition and what's involved in putting one like that together? Yeah, well, the, the critical edition uh, of Lewis's poetry, it's, it's actually a book that I wish had been available when I wrote my book on Lewis as a poet. Mm. Um, because when I worked on that first book, I had to do a lot of uh, a lot of digging to find all of the poems. But um, anyway, a critical edition is an attempt to pull together all of the poetry that is available and give each poem a very careful reading and try to reproduce um, the text as the poem had originally appeared in print or if it had not appeared in print before. A look at the various versions and try to decide which one was probably the one that Lewis would have published um, had the poem had he lived long enough to publish the poem. Um, so the process of doing that again, I think I, I I published the book, the critical edition, in 2015, but I'd been working on it for about 20 years as I uh, collected poems. You know, again, we had the Hooper collections, but there were dozens of other poems that had never been collected before. So part of the process, of course, was simply um, ferreting out where those poems were and working with the, the Lewis estate and others to, to get the material published. Um, there's kind of some interesting stories about the critical edition itself. I had to get permission from the Lewis company and from the uh, publishing company that had put together the three previous verses, versions, and the Lewis company was pretty easy to work with. Of course, I did have to pay a certain amount of money to them. The problem came with the the uh, publisher that that had done the earlier volumes. They were they 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 wanted a lot of money for me to be able to reproduce those poems, and I won't go into great detail. But after I sold one of my children, I was able to <laughs> no. <laughs> you just you just kind of have to work through that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how that book came to be. And I, I really enjoyed working on the critical edition. It's not what some would call a, is a very orum edition. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, David Wolf that a very orum edition is, but a very orum edition would be an edition that publishes every single version of a poem. And in the case of Lewis, um, while in his prose, he didn't do a whole lot of editing. In his poetry, he was editing all the time. So many of his poems exist in at least four or five versions. So if you had a variorum edition of Lewis's poetry, you would have all of the available versions of the poem. So maybe sometime in the future, some of them will do that. Um, but I think it would have to be supported by a probably an academic press. It's not too much worried about sales. <laughs> <laughs> and supported by a very sturdy desk, because I imagine right. that will be quite thick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have more poems been found since you did that edition? Uh, there's been a few. I, when I published the critical edition, I said that I thought that I was probably publishing about 95% of all of Lewis's poems. Uh, leaving, of course, open the fact that some poems might be discovered um, that we, we didn't know about. And there's been a few um, here and there, nothing nothing amazing, but uh, a few here and there. Uh, so maybe if that very Orem edition ever appears, maybe all of those other ones uh, will appear. Mm. 
Well, as I said, I've been reading Lewis's poetry for the last few months, and I've just, I've been very impressed with the range of styles and topics that Lewis addresses. You know, it's a common joke of mine that he's the jack of all genres, the fact that he <laughs> writes so widely. And it's lovely to see that repeated in his poetry. You know, some of them, as I said, are funny. Some of them are epitaphs. And one is effectively a big joke about Noah's Ark uh, that I just roared with laughter when I got about halfway through and guessed what the ending was going to be. Did you guess? I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, listeners, I'll, I'll probably put that poem in the show notes so you can have a read because it's, it's quite delightful. And you won't read Noah's Ark quite the same ever again. But Dr. King, what would you say are the main motifs and topics that you see repeating again and again throughout his poetry? Yeah. Well, again, this I'm, I'm focusing now mostly on the, the lyrical poet, poetry, not the narrative poems. But I think um, some of the main categories, uh, one you've already mentioned, uh, Lewis does write some some comic poems, uh, also some satiric poems. He can be he can be quite sharp in terms of his satire. Another collection I would call sort of contemplative poems, where he muses on what it means to be a human being, and then. A fairly large group of poems that we might call religious poems where he deals with even more specifically things like prayer and, and the Christian life and uh, God and our understanding of who God is. So those sort of three broad categories, comic and satiric and then contemplative and then um, some religious poems. Hmm. Well, we've spoken about the critical edition, which you produced. So let's turn to your other book, C.S. Lewis, Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse. Put simply, what's his legacy? Well, I mentioned it uh, really already. I think his, the main legacy is the way in which uh, the, his desire to be a poet is reflected in uh, his, his prose, much of his prose. I think of something like uh, Paralandra. Hmm. Um, and really one of my favorite books of Lewis's, and I, I hadn't realized it until I started working on um, Lewis as a poet, how much of that book is, is really inspired by poetic prose. And just as a little side story, again, the thesis of that book is that Lewis's best poetry shows up in his prose. When I was working on it, I came across correspondence between Lewis and Ruth Pitter, a poet who was very popular during uh, Lewis's lifetime. In fact, she was she was the poet, and he was the wannabe poet in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Anyway, I came across correspondence between the two of them in which Pitter asked Lewis if she could take the ending of Paralandra and turn it into Spencerian stanzas. Uh, and when I came across that, I thought, wow, i, I got to find this. This is, this is a main support to the thesis of my book. So I, I contacted the Lewis people. They knew nothing about Ruth Pitter's transcriptions of the ending of Paralandra. I contacted the lawyer who represented Pitter. He knew nothing about it. I happened to be at the Bodleian uh, doing research, and I thought, well, maybe the Bodleian has Ruth Pitter's papers. So I went up to the person I was working with and asked, and he said, well, of course we have Ruth Pitter's papers. And so I got very excited, but then he told me that I couldn't have access to them because <laughs> they hadn't been cataloged yet. But to make a long story short, um, eventually I did get access to her papers, and I was looking through her manuscript notebooks. And I won't make this overly dramatic, but I was about to leave the next day when I finally found 
her manuscript notebook where she had taken the end of Paralandra and turned it into Spenserian stanzas. And I ended up publishing that in, um, well, actually it appears in both both books, um, The Legacy of Lewis's Poetic Impulse and in the Critical Edition. So I, I think, uh, you know, uh, again, I think it's in Lewis's prose that we see in, in one sense that a legacy of his his desire to be a poet. I think a book like uh, other books, certainly that Lewis wrote, certainly reflect this poetic tendency. I think a grief observed, I sort of actually argue that a grief observed is uh, a poetic, it's a poetic lament, almost what we might call today free verse in some of the passages. So it's everywhere present, I think, in Lewis's work. And you've already indicated in your own reading that you've kind of come to that same conclusion. It's funny. I had an interview with Thomas Banks. Uh, we were talking about poetry. And my first question was, what actually is it? And he made the point that poetry is actually kind of hard to define. Um, and the definition that he sort of made up on the spot was it's, it's human language um, at, it, at, at its highest degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is that quality in Lewis's work. That, that, that makes people want to transform it into, into other forms. I actually remember when I was, I was in the Oxford Oratory looking through all of G.K. Chesterton's stuff, and I came across one box that they had there for some reason. It just had assorted Lewis things. So that was Christmas for me. And I came across a program for Paralandra, the opera. I had, uh-huh. no, I had no idea that this even existed. Uh, did you hear it? No. No. Is it available anywhere? No, but it was it was redone recently. I can't remember. Within the last, I'm pretty sure within the last five years, of course, things get muddled a little bit. It, but it hasn't been that long since it was re it was redone. Oh and goodness. I think if you can get in touch, I think Judith Wolf um, at St Andrews, she might have been involved, or that's that's the name that kind of is popping to my head right now. Okay. Uh, yeah. You might be able to find out from from her, but or maybe one of your listeners actually knows better. Uh, about that that recent uh, re reproduction of it, I think Judith and I have actually exchanged emails. I will track this down because I am yeah. now super curious. <laughs> cool, yeah. Well, I think that um, Lewis's poetry matters because it illustrates the degree to which writing poetry and being a poet were fundamental to his character. Again, that's mm. why it shows up in his, his prose. Um, as a young person, he, you know, we, we've talked about this. He, he wanted to be a great poet in the tradition of Virgil and Dante and Milton and Yeats. Um, that's probably not going to be the case. We're going to remember him more for his prose. But I did attend the uh, investiture of uh, Lewis at Westminster Abbey uh, in the Poet's Corner on November 22nd, 2013. And um, I, as I was there, I, I was thinking that he would have never been able to predict that 50 years to the day of his death, a stone honoring him would be placed in the floor of the abbey. Mm. Um, and I, I, I thought also that if he had been in the audience that day, he might have had sort of a wry, if slightly embarrassed, smile. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think you're right. Well, in the time that we've got left, would you mind just giving us a flavor of some of Lewis's poetry by just picking a couple of your favorites and talking to us about them? <laughs> well, I made a long list of my favorites. <laughs> I would I would have read the the, the uh, poem about Noah's Ark, but since you're going to deal with that, um, no, 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 do it, do it, do it, do it. It's too good. Go for it. 
You want me to? Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this is the entitled uh, "The Sailing of the Ark," and it was published originally in 1948. And so again, it's a it's Lewis's retelling of uh, the story of Noah's Ark. And so the poem goes: The sky was low, the sounding rain was falling dense and dark, and Noah's sons were standing at the window of the ark. The beasts were in, but Japheth said. I see one creature more belated and unmated there comes knocking at the door. Well, let him knock or let him drown, said Ham, or learn to swim. We're overcrowded as it is. We've got no room for him. And yet it knocks. How terribly it knocks, said Shem. Its feet are hard as horns, and oh, the air that comes from it is sweet. Now hush, said Ham. You'll waken Dad, and once he comes to see what's at the door, it's sure to mean more work for you and me. Noah's voice came roaring from the darkness down below. Some animal is knocking. Let it in before we go. Ham shouted back, and savagely he nudged the other two. That's only Japheth knocking down a brad nail in his shoe, said Noah. Boys, I hear a noise that's like a horse's hoof, said Ham. Well, that's the dreadful rain that drums upon the roof. Noah tumbled up on deck, and out he put his head. His face grew white, his knees were loosed. He tore his beard and said, Look, look, it would not wait. It turns away, it takes its flight. Fine work you've made of it, my sons, between you all tonight. O noble and unmated beast, my sons were all unkind. In such a night, what stable and what manger will you find? O golden hooves, O cataracts of mane, O nostrils wide with high disdain, and O the neck-waved arch, the lovely pride. O long shall be the furrows plowed upon the hearts of men before it comes to stable and to manger once again, and dark and crooked all the roads in which our race will walk, and shriveled all their manhood like a flower on broken stalk. Now all the world, O Ham, may curse the hour that you were born. Because of you, the ark must sail without the unicorn. <laughs> That's a delightful point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, let's see. What would be a good one? I don't want to read. A, I don't want him to be too long. Um, I think one of his sort of better known poems is The Apologist's Evening Prayer. Do you know mm-hmm. that poem? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually looking for somebody to do a nice calligraphy version because I've got quite a lot of apologists in my life that I want to send them a nice copy that they can put up in their offices just to remind them. So this this is a short poem. It's r- written in 1942, probably when Lewis is beginning to be recognized for his apologetics. And so he writes, From all my lame defeats and oh much more, from all the victories that I seemed to score, from cleverness shot forth on thy behalf, at which, while angels weep, the audience laugh. From all my proofs of thy divinity, thou who wouldst give no sign, deliver me. Thoughts are but coins. Let me not trust instead of thee their thin-worn image of thy head. From all my thoughts, even from my thoughts of thee, O thou fair silence, fall and set me free. Lord of the narrow gate and the needle's eye, take from me all my trumpery, lest I die. And as you probably know, David, Lewis claimed that his besetting sin was pride. And so once he became popular as, if you will, a Christian apologist, I think he from time to time certainly had to throw himself on his knees and realize that 
it would be very easy for him to begin to be prideful. So I think this poem reflects that that recognition on his part. Yeah, it really contributes to what he's written elsewhere. It, it completes the picture because he says things like, you know, a Christian doctrine is never less true to me than after I've had to defend it, you know, when I've had to go into a purely analytical mode. I remember he writes in a letter, I can't remember who he wrote it to, but he writes in a letter about how um, his lectures have been never more poorly attended and says, it must be terribly good for me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Here's a here's another little uh it's a it's a limerick he wrote. A funny old man had a habit of giving a leaf to a rabbit. At first it was shy, but then by and by it got rude and would stand up and grab it. <laughs> See, that's just so cute. <laughs> yeah. And then a couple of uh, poems probably written after the death of his wife. Uh these are kind of favorites of mine. Here's one that he wrote. We know he wrote this one for joy. It's entitled uh, Epitaph for um, Joy Davidman. Hear the whole world, stars, water, air, and field and forest as they were, reflected in a single mind, like cast-off clothes was left behind, in ashes yet with hope that she, reborn from holy poverty in Linton lands, hereafter may resume them on her Easter day. Mm. That's where Doug Gresham gets the title for his book, Linton Lands. Yeah, that's right. And then this sonnet that he wrote about joy, it's an undated poem, but it almost certainly was written around the time of her death. Um, and this is one of those poems that existed in a number of different versions. And I published the one that Hooper had included in his uh, edition, in the 1964 edition. Uh, the, other, the other versions were really interesting, but I think this one captured most powerfully what Lewis was tr trying to say. It's a sonnet. He writes, all this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk in Greek but self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Only that now you have taught me, but how late my lack. I see the chasm, and everything you are was making my heart into a bridge by which I might get back from exile and grow man, and now the bridge is breaking. For this I bless you as the ruin falls. The pains you give me are more precious than all other gains. And no matter how many times I've read this poem, I, I sort of almost tear up every time I hmm. read it. It's it's such a powerful poem. And this, then just one last one, um, a short poem, but I think, again, one of Lewis's uh, best poems. Um, Love's as warm as tears. Do you know that poem? No. I had heard uh, As the Ruin Falls, and every time it comes up, Andrew always reminds us that Phil Keggy has a version of it. <laughs> Again, you have yeah. people taking Lewis's material and adapting it. Yeah. So here is, uh, this poem is actually um, for the uh, 2013 event at Westminster Abbey. Mm -hmm. uh, this poem was actually set to music and it was sung there. It was beautiful. Uh, it's entitled Love's as Warm as Tears. Kind of, oh, uh, I, did. I have heard this one. Yes. Yeah. yes. I'll yeah. put a link in the show notes to a recording that I found of it. Oh, great. Um, it's um, it's not exactly connected to the four loves, but it's, you know, there's, there's some relationship there. 
So he writes, love's as warm as tears, love is tears. Pressure within the brain, tension at the throat, deluge, weeks of rain, haystacks afloat, featureless seas between hedges where once was green. Love's as fierce as fire, love is fire. All sorts, infernal heat, clinkered with greed and pride, lyric desire, sharp sweet, laughing even when denied, and that ethereal flame whence all loves came. Love's as fresh as spring, love is spring. Birdsong hung in the air, cool smells in the wood, whispering, dare, dare, to sap, to blood, telling ease, safety, rest are good, not best. Love's as hard as nails, love is nails, blunt, thick, hammered through the medial nerves of one who, having made us, knew the thing he had done, seeing with all that is our cross and his. And I remember reading that poem the first time, and that last stanza just sort of mm. came out of nowhere and was like a gut punch. Um, so just just a powerful kind of poem. And I, I again, I think we, this is not a dated poem, but it's probably a certain one that he wrote um, having to do with Joy's death. So I could go on and on, but I better stop. <laughs> uh, when it came to trying to date the poems, did you look at external evidence or did you send all this stuff to Charlie Starr and ask him how the R's look. What year was this R? <laughs> actually, actually, Charlie uh, started helping me after the critical edition was published. Well, you know, the Bodleian has a lot of Lewis's unpublished poetry, or it was, you know, it was unpublished at the time, and so did the Wade Center. So I just had to work through the different versions, and um, I, you know, I could have guessed at some of the, the dates for these poems, and, and in, case, in some cases I actually did. But it's, I think that, you know, Charlie has helped since then to try to probably identify when some of the poems were, were written. Um, but yeah, I just, I just kind of had to work with what I had. Wonderful. Well, Dr. King, final pitch. Why should people read Lewis's poetry? Go. <laughs> because uh, you will see in Lewis's poetry, many of the seminal things that show up later in his his prose his uh, his gift of uh musicality and language his powerful use of metaphor and simile and analogy his love of language and of words his um deep passionate desire to communicate truth i think all of those things come out in uh, Lewis's poetry, as well as is those last poems suggest his humanity, his his um, his very real ability to to suffer and to know what pain is, certainly expressed in those poems to joy. Doctor John W. King, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. <laughs> As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of your various books, specifically the collected poems of C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse? Sure. Most of, uh, I think all of my books are available either on Amazon or uh, since Kent State University Press has published most of them, you can find them there at their website or you can go to my website. Okay. Thanks again to Dr. King for coming on the show. 
Thanks to all of you for spending an hour with us. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Angela, Deborah 1 and Deborah 2, Amanda, Thomas, Anony Mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and maybe include a line or two of Lewis's poetry. We'll be continuing our poetry exploration for the rest of this month, and then in September we'll be wrapping up this season. And we'll also be reading some iTunes reviews, so if you've never written us a review on iTunes or Audible or any of the other platforms, please do so, and we might read it out in the season finale. And please join us next week, when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.